0: Hello, friends. Welcome to another episode of Hybrid Unlimited. This is your host, Hayden Bowe. I'm here with my co-host, Marcus Leone. And today, our guest is Paul O'Need. Paul has a really cool story coming from a traditional strength coaching background, working for universities in the Canadian university system, uh, into moving into a more non-traditional professional avenue as an entrepreneur, Uh, coaching people online, doing something uh, similar to what we do here at Hybrid. So he talks all about his transition from one space to the other, uh, everything in between, best coaching practices. uh, And we have some fun along the way talking about our uh, fat cheesecake eating experiences and other things like that. So definitely uh, a podcast you're going to want to stick around for and enjoy. As always, take a screenshot while you're listening to this podcast, post it in your stories on social media, tag me, tag Marcus, tag hybrid, uh, tag our guest for some brownie points, and you'll automatically be entered in a draw to potentially win some hybrid legacy brand apparel, which is the official apparel of the podcast, as well as hybrid performance method as a whole. While you're at it, check out our programs at hybridstrengthcoach.com. We've got everything from general fitness to Olympic weightlifting, powerlifting, strongman, and everything in between. Again, that's hybridstrengthcoach.com. And without further ado, sit back, relax, enjoy
1: another episode of Hybrid Unlimited. What's up, everyone? It's your favorite podcast producer, Nick Tricana, here to give you a word from our incredible sponsor over at Element. Listen, you're not getting enough electrolytes or salt in your diet. I see it, Steffi sees it, Hayden sees it, we all see it. Element is an electrolyte drink mix with no sugar, no artificial ingredients, and no BS. Everyone needs electrolytes, especially those on low-carb diets, practice intermittent fasting, are physically active, or sweat a lot. But don't just take my word for it, I mean the proof is in the pudding. U.S. Olympians, players in the NFL, NBA, NHL, and even our own special forces drink Element. I wouldn't go so far as to say I'm the pinnacle of self-performance, but ever since Steffi turned me on to Element, I've seen vast improvements in my everyday training and recovery. You guys can try Element today with a totally risk-free, no-questions-asked refund policy. And you know what? Because we love y'all so much over here at Hybrid Unlimited, we're going to hook you up with a free sample pack of Element just for you. Each sample pack includes eight grab-and-go packets in a variety of different flavors. All you have to do is go to drinkelement.com hybrid. That's drinklmnt.com slash hybrid. Again, that's drinklmnt.com slash hybrid for your free sample pack of eight grab-and-go element packets. Stay salty, my friends. Now back to the podcast. Yeah, what
2: What were you saying? I said maybe they'll come out with Bulletproof Gap X-Easy.
0: Well, John's been All trying out. to work on that. Bulletproof uh, t- uh, t- <clears throat> T-shirts and sweaters. Oh S- my gosh. <laughs> yeah, for real. He's, he wants that to be the part of his, like... Expensive line, like he's gonna name it. so Like I was talking about it like a year ago. Yeah, yeah. So I mean, it'd be like stab proof, <laughs> and uh, so he's gonna come out with chainmail shirts. No, he's it's gonna be like beauty, Kevlar or something. Well, all right. We'll we'll, <laughs> we'll catch up on John
2: after the show. Uh Paul, welcome. Thanks, man. I'm happy to be here. Welcome to Miami. Yeah, thanks for making the trip. It's one of my favorite places to be. uh Had three homeless people run in front of my car on my way here, so. Really? Off to a good start. Only oh, three? Yeah. Only three? Those are those right? yeah. yeah. I know. <laughs> Seriously, I found a uh, homeless man masturbating outside the front door of my office building just a couple weeks ago. Did you let him finish?
0: <laughs> I, well, you didn't interact with him, so probably. No, no,
2: we did. We kicked him out. Oh, we we went out and I videoed it. He actually, I know you. He sent me the video. Wait, 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 wait! Oh my god! You can't, did, you can't see. You can't anything. see the. You. You can't see the bits, but. What you can see is him aggressively going at it under a blanket outside of our office like it's quite
0: clear what's happening
2: we go out and confront him and we're like hey man you can't do this here you gotta go and then he's just
0: a a castanza on you he's like oh i mean i gotta plead ignorance on this one no he was just like (laughs) man what are
2: you talking about i wasn't masturbating i was just like oh my god dude like please he pulls down the blanket As if to prove to us that the penis wasn't out, and it was not out, but (laughs) anyways, welcome to Wynwood, welcome to Miami. Thanks, man. Glad to have you back. We're actually,
0: (laughs) homeless people running in front of your car is like the least dangerous part about driving in Miami. Yeah. Very true.
2: I wonder, I mean, you know, at all the intersections here, you've got a resident in the middle of the intersection. Closer to where I live, there's a couple like wheelchair guys that, you know, I feel bad for them. Obviously, they're having a tough time, but... They're like right in the middle of the road. It's so dangerous, and everybody hears on their phone. So oh, like to
0: ask for change?
2: Yeah, stuff? but they're like
0: uh, in yeah. the
2: middle of the road at all times, an intersection, like the most dangerous place to be. Even in a car, it's dangerous. Yeah, that's
0: not safe. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's you can't be anywhere, dude. Somebody, like you just saw last week, mistook the the sidewalk for a lane, right in midtown, and drove into the building they were trying to go brand the building brand new building <laughs> and there's it, it's it's a pretty wide sidewalk but it's very clearly not the road yeah. and uh i guess the car couldn't fit it was just a little I mean, too small and it's a in the building. fairly
2: common misunderstanding
3: <laughs> i'm sitting here trying to give the person the benefit of the doubt
2: it's had to have just been drunk
3: to. or something had to be that's
0: no
2: good but, um, <laughs> <laughs> there's no like politically correct way to say that. Like, no, there's, you were, there was a, a amalgamation of cocktails in that person's system, uh, pharmaceutical and alcoholic. And, you know, it's easy to understand why they could mistake the sidewalk for the road. It's
0: Cause some hallucinogens or something yeah, in there, some psychedelics, know,
2: you know, things when the feeling comes over you
0: <laughs> drive on the sidewalk. Oh, man. Um, what I, to bring it in to you, because yes. I don't know if you remember this, but you've been obviously in the industry for a long time. Yes. And our shoulders actually rubbed by proxy like many, many years I ago do before remember. I even knew you. Yep. Yeah. How's so that? Paul, you were the strength and conditioning coach at what university was it?
3: Queens University in Kingston.
0: At, at Queens. Yeah. And then my ex-girlfriend at the time uh, had just graduated from a master's program. Yep. And I think she was offered the job because uh, Paul
3: was leaving. And did she end up coming to shadow you? So, what happened was I opened up a position as my assistant. Oh, okay. She applied. She didn't have her CSCS at the time. Mm. So, I told her to pass the CSCS and I would interview her. I ended up quitting, Ooh. which, honestly, looking back, was probably the best thing ever for her, your and her career because the business you guys ended up starting. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's that's how I originally was like, oh, I know I know Hayden Bo.
0: Yeah, what a small world, right? Super small world. That was so I just I only knew you by name at that point and then <clears throat> when was the next time we would have crossed paths?
3: Before? Um it was when you while well, you had Hybrid mm-hmm. and I came down to visit Mike Delapava at Battle Axe and oh, I reached right. out you
0: you came out to top golf with us. Yep, I came out to top golf right. and
3: I was I was blown away cuz I was like you know, this guy I met, I I've, you know, only know him by proxy. I'm gonna reach out, see if he wants to hang out. You drove 45 minutes each way to pick me up <laughs> just to right, play top right. golf. I was like, all right, this is a good dude. <laughs> like,
0: well, when you, you know, whenever we have a Canadian in town, we gotta show them that, uh, that Canadian sure. hospitality. So, you know, and I had new, known your name from before, so that was like, it was a good, you know.
3: That was, had so to do. our original paths had crossing was in 2013. Wow. 10 years ago. Wow. Almost. Yep.
0: Did, were you doing anything in the industry prior to that job?
3: Yep. So I got into the industry coaching my first client in 2007. Ended up graduating from the University of Ottawa with human kinetics degree in 2009. Moved down to the University of South Florida. Did an internship with their strength and conditioning department. Did a master's degree there. Ended up moving to Pittsburgh. You did were a, in Tampa? I was, yeah. Really? For for a year and a half. So you were at USF? I was at USF. I worked with their football. That's where my wife went to school. Really? Before she
2: went to law school, yeah.
3: Cool. Yeah, Yeah, I did uh, football, baseball, track, and soccer there. Moved up to Pittsburgh, worked at Robert Morris University for two years, did another master's degree there. Moved back to Tampa to work at the University of Tampa. Finished my second master's degree, the first one I started, and then got the full-time job at Queens and was there for a year before I quit. Wow. And what did you do after Queens? So when I was at Queen's, the administration wanted a U.S. style program, but within the constraints of a Canadian system.
0: What, what does that mean?
3: So I was getting paid $53,000 $53, a year, and I was maxed out at 35 hours a week to coach 15 teams, teach a class, and administrate 50 students. Wow. Um, so I burnt out
2: real bad. But what do you mean by like a U.S. style program and a Canadian system? Like what, so, what's the difference? The
3: Canadian system essentially is the opposite of, of an American system. So when kids go to school for sports in the U.S., sports comes first. Yeah. Right? They'll say, you're, you're a student athlete. athlete right? right. In Canada, I could only coach them before class hours and after class hours. Oof. So my day was about 5 a.m. to 9 And then 6 to 10 or 10.30. During the middle of the day, I still had to teach. I still had to do um, any administrative work, talk to coaches, all that stuff. But it was a unionized position. So for those hours above 35, I wasn't getting paid. I was getting time in lieu. But since I didn't have an assistant, I couldn't take my time in lieu. So I ended up having to take four weeks vacation during exams when a lot of teams were in playoffs. So I couldn't even do my job. And then I would get flack because I wasn't spending enough time, you know, socializing with the administration, talking to coaches because I had 15 teams. And if we do the math, 15 teams, three sessions a week minimum. Football was actually 10 sessions a week. That's a lot more than 35 hours. Yeah, that's crazy. Yeah, and it was just unsustainable. And for me as a young professional, I tried to be everything for everyone, which was a big learning lesson because you'll never get what you want unless you ask. Well, I ended up voicing my concerns, telling them why I was quitting. They ended up giving everything I asked for to the new guy. He got a $20,000 pay raise, he was no longer unionized, he got an assistant, he got a brand new weight room. Wow. So for me, I was like, yeah, I probably should have learned from this.
0: What's the benefit of not being unionized in that setting?
3: So in that setting, that allows you to work as many hours as you need to. Uh, And you can also get paid overtime. Got it. So when you're unionized, you're mandated. Because the union protects the workers, protects the workers, you're only limited to the number of hours that you're allocated. So that time in lieu ends up being overtime or paid
2: time. For the Americans in the audience, can you explain what that means?
3: Time in lieu? Yeah. So essentially you're credited vacation hours for every hour that you work above your
2: unionized rate.
0: That's why he was getting
2: four hours yeah, yeah. or four weeks. Sorry. So it's like you get credit, what we would call PTO hours here yeah. in the corporate world. Exactly. Right.
3: Yeah, it was uh, It was really challenging. Okay. And at that point, I'm a firm believer that when you get into strength and conditioning at the college level, you do it because you want to give to others. You're not getting into it to make a ton of money. There's, sure. there's not a lot of money to be made in general, especially in Canada, where at the time, I forget how many... How many conference schools we had something along the lines of like 13 to 15 in our conference there was only five full-time strength coaches mm-hmm. me being one of them in the oua between all of those teams yeah. between all of the schools they would either contract out oh, okay or they would have someone for a couple of the teams and then the other teams would fend for themselves wow. so it was just a really young profession in canada given the fact that the cis is Canadian inter-university sport is not revenue-generating like the NCAA so at the time I really didn't know any better I was 26 years old it was my first full-time job and for all intents and purposes my dream job ended up ended up burning out losing my passion and at the time I was like I can't even be there for myself at this point it's not fair to me or to these kids to stay, because I'm not doing them any, any any service here. So I stepped away. The new coach that came in did a fantastic job. He's still there. So oh, well. he's happy. Uh, okay. I actually moved into disability rehabilitation. So I worked for an insurance company, uh, helping people get back to work, both physical and mental health. So on my end, gave me a tremendous opportunity to learn about communication strategies, uh, different sorts of mental health interventions that we even still use now with Master Athletic Performance, my coaching company, to help our clients get to where they need to be. But it's a far cry from going, you know, motherfucking kids in the weight room and telling them to sprint harder <laughs> <Yeah>. to <laughs> explaining to explaining to Sally that you know, it's okay if she if her physical activity for the day is going out and sitting on her porch because she's agoraphobic and doesn't want to go outside. Wow. That is a big pivot. Big pivot, but an incredible learning experience. Oh, So challenging
0: did you just want to like get back into that like boot camp model and like- well, I these people I didn't
3: get it. I could not relate for the life of me. And because even when I was going through my burnout, I'm still training. I'm still pushing. I'm still sure. doing the things that I want to do for me. But you know, when you're dealing with mental health issues in the workplace, these are people who literally cannot be there for themselves. So I was very grateful that the company I worked for did a tremendous amount of continuing education. And I was able to learn a ton of stuff and I'm such a better communicator because of that experience. I did that for about six months before I realized that working 40 hours a week was really easy because yeah. I was used to working 90 to hundred. Uh-huh. And so I was like, I'm going to start coaching again. So I started coaching more so online, slowly built up my business. And I actually ended up- for, In tandem
0: with working that other job. In tandem
3: job. with working that other job. So I was, by the end of my time working that other job, which I stayed in for six years, I had you know, 60, 70 clients on the side, oh, wow. and I was still working full-time, earning a living full-time. I ended up paying off all of my student loans. I, try, I actually tried launching uh, an app-based business. So my full investment in that came from coaching. And, uh, you know, that didn't work out, but I was able to do a lot of stuff so that when I stepped away from my full-time job, I was already earning more than twice that coaching online. So stepping away was a no brainer. Wow. And then how does that translate into what you do now? So what I do now, I simply just scaled, I continued to scale the coaching business. I still have about the same amount of clients, but now I'm able to do, uh, education for coaches. So I started a business called coaches corner university where we do continuing education in in the sense of bridging the gap from post-secondary education to in the trenches coaching. How to apply that clinical experiential and experimental knowledge to the person you're coaching and then doing also business mentorships and one-on-one mentorships with coaches helping them to expand their knowledge base and expand their clientele and uh, and then further build my company add on some coaches to, for, our, for our businesses and just continue to grow so it's been fantastic what um
0: <clears throat> what do you think in the earlier days of being in a more traditional setting do you think that helped you or hindered you in your transition to this what i would consider now fairly traditional there's a there's yep. a lot more people doing it but at that time pretty unconventional sort of line of work um did it prepare you being in that setting absolutely or yeah what's your absolutely so
3: the number one thing that coaches lack when they start coaching online is experience Mm -hmm. right like if you go from never having coached someone in person to getting sent all these videos Mm -hmm. if you think about how many squats benches and deadlifts i've seen working with 500 student athletes a year for five years it's a lot of reps yeah so Mm -hmm my coaching eye, my ability to communicate in different ways, that's 500 different personalities that you have to mold your communication style towards. Add into that the further communications styles that I learned while I was doing disability rehabilitation, now I'm able to form relationships, um, communicate information in different ways and convey knowledge to people who may not otherwise be able to integrate that knowledge into their own coaching, into their own training, sorry.
0: Yeah, I think uh, it's actually something that I got reintroduced to just recently. And it uh, sort of reset my thinking and made me understand again how important it is um, actually working with people in person. Oh, yeah. Because, you know, I went from doing that exclusively to running an online business to then running another online business. Mm -hmm. And even though I'm coaching people, you know, online and giving them form checks and doing all that kind of stuff, we started coaching uh, a fighter strength and conditioning uh, program twice uh, a week at the gym. Nice. And so we're dealing with high-level people but who don't have a ton of exposure to strength and conditioning. Right. And just going back to that, it's so different when you're in person just getting that feedback immediately from somebody, what they're accustomed to, what they're struggling with things that when you've been in the industry and you've been squatting, benching, deadlifting, doing all these exercises for like, you know, 10 plus years, you forget what people have like trouble with. Yep. You know, it's like things you wouldn't even think about as needing to be cued, you know, like, when's the last time you really had to think about what you're gonna do in the squat? Like it's pretty automatic at this point, right? You get another barbell, you do your squat, unless there's something that you're fundamentally trying to address in that training block or whatever, you know? But for me, it was just like, oh, like this is really beneficial
3: for a coach to go back and and do this every once in a while. I'll take it one step further. How many online coaches do you know that have ever asked their clients how their day is going? I I bet you it's a lot fewer than, than you'd think. How's your day going? What are you dealing with? Why are you so stressed? you know, what could be going on in your day to day that's affecting your ability to perform. That part of relationship building is innate when you're working in person. Mm -hmm. But when you have that disconnect of social media or uh, instant messaging, whatever that might be, it becomes very much a superficial relationship. Mm -hmm. And personally, I find your ability to relate to the client, to form a, a deeper relationship, build that trust that's what actually gets the buy-in and will give you the best outcomes in terms of performance, outcomes in terms of client retention, and then all of that leads to improved revenue over time. So, unless you can create this I don't I, I like the term relationship. I don't like the term friendship because it is a professional relationship. Right. But being able to form that relationship with the client, it only serves to improve the service that you provide.
2: So let's go down a rabbit hole then. Absolutely. At, at, in this world, like I've never been a coach myself. I don't, I never had any interest in it. You know, I'm good enough on the athletes side. You've been
3: coached though. I've been coached. Right. And this is
2: why we're gonna go down this right. this little rabbit hole here of kind of this conversation that's coming to mind for me. Cause like, you know, I had a handful of coaches in powerlifting, and the one where it was the most progress that I saw. You know, it was a very interesting relationship. The guy was literally on the bottom of the planet. Shout, shout yep. out to Sebastian if you're listening. Yeah, but, incredible coach. Right. You know, and why that clicked for me is probably not the same reason that you or you would click with somebody. I think it was like a very, very individualized type thing. See, like. I'll get to my my question in a second yeah. but the reason it came to mind is like you know I never needed to be handheld or anything like that you know at a certain point you don't mm-hmm. uh, for some people it resonates just to like f- for somebody to truly like understand once you get to a certain point like how to push this guy further without breaking them and also when to take a break and how to recover and all that so like what is the most meaningful aspect for you when it comes to people all across the spectrum like we're talking beginner to very advanced when it comes to your relationship with somebody that you're coaching and they want to see progress like how do you differentiate from individual to individual and tailor things to their needs like how do you look at a person go through whatever your intake process is and be like this is what this person needs this is what i think is going to be the most successful way to communicate with them or or not
3: that's a that's a really complex question. Um, that's why I asked it. I think <laughs> <laughs> you
2: get to show off your brains now. Yeah.
3: So a lot of that now is quite instinctual. Just having worked with so many people. What was the word you just used? Instinctual. Oh, instinctual. Okay. Yeah. It's a triple word score. Um, <laughs> big Scrabble guy. Big Scrabble guy. Big Scrabble guy. Um, but. It, it comes down to the, like the intake process, what's worked for them in the past, what hasn't worked for them in the past, uh, what their experience level in sport is like, I usually speak to a client on the phone or over Zoom before we actually start our programming together and our coaching relationship. And that does help me to learn about them. But in terms of that relationship building, probably the most important thing that you can have is the trust of your client, that they can disclose information to you without judgment. So I actually had a conversation with a new client yesterday. She's a personal trainer, very, very hard worker. She feels as though when she has to ask me questions or clarifications, it's admitting to me that she's inadequate Mm -hmm. because she's a coach. So there's a level of vulnerability there. And every single client has that trigger of vulnerability that you need to understand and be able to leverage either to improve the relationship or to get more out of them.
2: Like allowing them to be vulnerable,
3: with allowing you. them to be vulnerable with you, allowing them to open up and ask questions because ultimately as coaches, we're educators. And once someone understands why they're trying to, we are asking them to do something, then you'll get their best effort out of it because if it's just sets and reps, then they're just going through the motions, right? If I'm asking you, Hey, I need you to go to failure on this exercise. In the context of, of bodybuilding or hypertrophy work. Right, right. Well, I've never been asked to go to failure before. Maybe I don't know how to do that. Right? Or, hey, I, I want you to stay at this RPE, but the person doesn't feel they're working hard enough at that RPE. Mm-hmm. Well, why can't I go heavy? Right? If I don't feel like I'm working hard, I feel Great like I'm question. not doing enough. And if I'm not doing enough, then I'm going to fail. I'm not going to get to where I want to go. So that relationship and that trust to allow that client to be vulnerable, ask those questions, and you to give really good
2: answers rather
3: than just do what I said, mm-hmm.
2: that's what's going to unlock the potential you, in that person. You brought up a point that I I think is interesting, I like, like it applies across the board mm-hmm. to people, coaches, athletes, you know, human beings, whatever, is that... People don't feel like they're doing enough, and I know in the gym because, like, mm. you know, I've been, you know, I've never been a coach. Don't want to be. Dude, it's my, maybe my personality type's not meant for it. Whatever, but uh, I mean, I've been training since I was fifteen. You right. know, and it was it's been six days a week f- until I started powerlifting. Powerlifting is when I got to my lowest number of training days, highest numbers. Yeah, yeah. my the highest level of strength, but um. Oh my god, where was I going with that? What was my question? Oh, not doing enough. Right. <laughs> yeah. So like, how, how do you see that? Cause in the world that we live in these days, it's so much, you know, it ties into social media. Yep. People always feel this need to perform, need to do more. We're talking about that earlier. I'm not performing enough. I'm not doing enough. I could be, you know, doing X, Y, and Z in the gym and, and, to my point earlier about, you know, working with Sebastian as my coach, like I found a lot of success in that because it was the simplest my training's ever been, yep. which allowed for the most recovery periods, which allowed for me to make the greatest strength gains over, you know, the time that him and I worked together, probably my strongest ever. Yeah. So you f- pulled four hundred kilos, didn't you? In the gym. You, you pulled four hundred kilos. All right, yeah, I did. <laughs> I I was I did the hybrid showdown this past year to go for 410. And I felt like I was on track for it so I got covid and it just poof slapped me up. Can we say covid? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, are we, we going to get demonetized oh, for that? No, the CDC, the CDC says covid's fine now so.
0: Oh yeah, you don't even have to quarantine anymore. No, nope. we're fine. Um
2: so how do you differentiate? How do you allow people to give them or, or to allow I, I should say how do you promote the idea to your clients? And anybody listening right now that like you know you may not have a hundred percent day every day and some days you know like I I heard some really interesting stories in my time I don't know if you did heard this too but there was somebody was talking to Mariana Gasparian's coach Mm -hmm. and I don't remember this is just somebody we were talking to but like said she would go to the gym and she had a really particular style of training and she would work up to like a maximum weight for the day or whatever and if she wasn't feeling good she would just leave You know, like I know, and I personally know a lot of really high level people that they would do the same thing. You know, like if you go in and your goal is to perform, but if you're going to push yourself so hard that mentally you'll be crushed by not performing, then it's better to just have some self-awareness in that situation. That's that's
0: really interesting because it must be relative, right? Because we've we've all done powerlifting at a a very high intensity and... Mm -hmm. You mostly don't feel good, <laughs> so it's like, would you ever train if you only trained when you felt good? And I, yeah,
2: obviously anecdote, right? And she was pretty high level, yeah. but I guess my point is like, how do you train people and build enough trust in sure. them and them trust you enough so you can tell them like it's okay to sit on your porch, like that is actually yeah. a step.
3: Yeah, how do you elicit that vulnerability in yeah in the client? So there's a few pieces to that. The first one is doing more is not better, right? Right. Better is better. So if the quality of the work is coming at the detriment of the volume of work, we have to remember ultimately what the goal is. The goal is to progress squat, bench, and deadlift in the context of powerlifting. So if doing more squat, bench, and deadlift isn't serving that end, well, that's not a valuable strategy for us. The other piece there is, The hardest thing you've ever done is the hardest thing you've ever done. That's your barometer. Mm -hmm. So if your barometer is set really low, your highest level of effort or your perception of effort is going to be really low. I think of, you know, one person pops in. I'm not going to mention her name, throw her under the bus, but I was spotting her on a set of leg press. I'm done. I'm like, no, you're not. And she did seven people
0: on a set of leg press. Oh, yeah. 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 You hold the thing and you. Okay.
3: She did, yeah, seven, she did seven. She <laughs> did seventeen more reps. Oh my
2: god, that's okay. a lot.
3: Than the point so at which she thought she was going to fail. Impressive, right?
2: Okay,
3: it's impressive. But in the back of my mind, I'm like, this girl needs to figure out what hard work is. So how do you teach that? Well, it's reps and sets over time. So convincing someone that the quality of the effort is the most important piece, and then from there, the amount of work becomes secondary. So we can talk about volume or the appropriate number of sets, right? The research says eight to 20 sets per muscle group. And, you know, you need X amount of exposures per week and frequency will impact volume. But when you equate it over the course of the week, it's the same. That's what the research says. But if the person in front of you has no idea what maximal intensity is, none of that matters. Mm -hmm. So you have to find that personality trait or that trigger that allows them to to surpass their previous best to get that fear out of them
2: is that inspiring confidence or them trusting you enough because like here here's my take on it right like when i was prepping for the u.s open last year and this was my overall strongest i've ever been it was like the way bass programs is very interesting he just writes numbers for you to do like you go in and do it Mm -hmm. and to me that was that scared that did you ever not no i never did i never ever I don't th- I think there was maybe like one bench press one time throughout that whole cycle I missed something but this is where I'm, this is what I'm getting at right like he would write these numbers for me and it was like I was scared to shit every time mm-hmm. you know he wrote for me to, what to do in competition in the gym and like I hit every single one of those numbers however there was never a day that went by that I would wake up and look at my program and be like that's going to be easy every time i would think like holy shit like i had to you know and obviously i trusted him so he inspired confidence in me and i inspired more confidence in myself and i would go do it but it still freaks you out so for the everyday person pushing themselves where they have some kind of accurate barometer on what their own level of maximal intensity is or where they should start to get a little freaked out i know in powerlifting it's different in the world of bodybuilding it's you know, perhaps a, a different barometer.
3: I mean, from a programming perspective, there's a lot of tools you can use. AMRAPs, uh, switching from you know, percentages to RPE, switching from RPE to actually specific loading. Yeah. I'm a very big believer in giving autonomy to the lifter, right, so giving them the choice of what goes on the bar can go a long way to inspire confidence in them. Are they gonna make mistakes and choose the incorrect weights? Absolutely but that's a learning experience. And in online coaching, I can't always be there on the day.
4: Mm-hmm. So if
3: this person has no concept of how a rep felt as compared to their best, and then they get to a meet situation and something doesn't feel good, they have no idea what choice to make in that regard. I could have a meet plan written out, you know, a really nice spider web of attempts based on how things feel and blah, 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 but to them it's just numbers on a sheet. So our training needs to be tailored to that end. I need to be able to teach them about themselves and we can implement whatever tools we want, but that all comes down to the communication back and forth during that process. Had you communicated to Bass that, you know, I don't feel comfortable doing this weight. I'm sure he would have come back with something either extremely motivating verbally or. Oh, he
2: did. Yeah. It was, it was. And, again, this is a huge anecdote, so I don't mean to convey this to people and be like, this is the way it should be done. Right. This is the way that – the like, you know, I was very, very privileged, you know, because he was – you know, I got introduced to him through hybrid, and we became friends, and he offered to coach me. You know, it was like, holy shit, a like Doris coach is willing to, to tr- teach me how to be a better power lifter? Like, that's cool. But for, for most people, like, they're – you know, where they are on their journey is, is unique. themselves right so I I love talking to people and now that I'm getting more of an opportunity to talk to people on this podcast like let's talk about like how every day athletes you know everyday weightlifters and powerlifters and bodybuilders can like learn something that's not so highbrow that it doesn't really like become relatable to them and make sense but yeah i
3: don't want to ever come on a podcast and talk like that because it just doesn't help
2: like real world strategy real world like what can you do on a day-to-day basis that's going to make your life better at work and at home and in the gym and like i think for a lot of people where i originally wanted to go with that like quote-unquote rabbit hole question is like how do you make the gym a more fulfilling and less like anxious experience for people where they feel like they're performing with the guy they saw on social media? And, and that's just not attainable. Well,
3: I think perspective helps. Like a lot of the things that you're gonna see on social media are only the highlights. Mm-hmm. So communicating to them, that's not the everyday, right? We all know that when we're competing at a high level, you said it before, there are a lot more meh sessions oh, yeah. than there are good ones. And there are a lot well, more. Um, bad sometimes a meh session becomes a good session. <laughs> That's also true. Um, but in terms of like takeaways, test yourself. Let's let's hit some, some AMRAPs in that 80 to 85% range. Right? Weights that are kind of scary, let's push it. Let's put the appropriate safety guidelines in. place. I like, I like place.
2: going to the place that it's yeah. scary. Going to that place where you're like. Hey, bro, like, you sure I could do this? Yeah. yeah. I remember I asked Hayden for years, like, did you see that last rep? Like, did that look okay? And he'd be like, yeah. So
3: what does that do? It creates an awareness, (laughs) right? Right. So we do video reviews. Mm -hmm. So in these video reviews, we're pointing out, okay, this didn't actually move as bad as it felt. Yeah. Right. That's a big one. Like if you're only going off RPE, so this subjective metric.
0: Well, and especially to your point earlier the client whose barometer is set very low. Right.
3: right? Chronically undershooting. Yeah. So let's take them to that scary place with some AMRAPs. Um, Let's be safe in our execution, right? Like let's not put them at risk of injury, but let's put them in positions to be scared. Maybe we introduce some overload strategies, right? Some heavy chained lifts where Mm. it's bone crushingly heavy at the top, but manageable at the bottom. Putting them in positions where, they find a particular lift to be challenging, all right, let's push that lift. Like if you suck at front squats, let's build your front squat. Let's make that really, really strong. As long as we know there's some correlation between that front squat and your back squat, Mm -hmm. which I've never met a good front squatter that sucked at back squat. Right. But now we're in a position where we are challenging the cognitive distortions of that individual. And if we're returning back to mental health interventions, we're talking about cognitive behavioral therapy through coaching. Right? Mm-hmm. We're creating an awareness over this fear. We're putting together these, uh, these they're called behavioral experiments to challenge those beliefs. And then through the evidence of success, now we build confidence. And there, like I said, there's a million different ways to accomplish that. But as a coach, that's the type of mental gymnastics that you kind of have to do with that person to get them from that place of fear to that
2: place of confidence. So you guys are I'm going to I'm going to hijack this. Do cool? it. Yeah. yeah. All right. So you guys are so active as you know, you've got, you've got thousands of members and you've got probably hundreds of people that work with you guys now. I want to talk about powerlifting a little bit. Sure. And maybe we could touch on bodybuilding a little bit after that since that's your new passion project. I, the world of powerlifting is, you know, it's what got me you know, so invested in the world of strength sports. Because, you know, I was weightlifter for a little bit, but I really found success in powerlifting. So you guys have your fingers on the pulse of the powerlifting world more than I do probably right now. But what's what's going on in the world of powerlifting and what are like emerging trends and uh, emerging methods of training? Like, you know, obviously this stuff always fluctuates, but, you know, where do you see the sport right now? And then I want to talk about where it's going.
3: The one thing that I actually really enjoy is that research and the application of research into training methodology is coming to the forefront.
2: Really? How though?
3: So when we talk about the emerging research with regards to strength development, people aren't as scared to lift heavy anymore.
2: Mm-hmm. And are you talking about all athletes? Because like, I, I, all right, again, anecdotally, but my cross-section of the world of powerlifting is like, People that would compete in at least in the states. What is it in Canada for the uh... CPU? Is the okay. tested federation? Mm-hmm. Okay, so like the USA ver- It's funny you read my mind there. Yeah, like their <laughs> style of training was yep. very different, yep. and I think their mindset about the way that they trained was very different. And I'm not saying it's good or bad. I'm just saying, objectively speaking, it was different than the amount of frequency and volume. And I think there was a pretty discernible uh, discrepancy in age. For the most part, or yep. at least like an age range that the for sure. USAPL athletes would be competing, and
3: they were always um, much younger. Yeah, it's because right. when they get older, they get injured and start taking drugs. it's a natural progression. Natural progression, and then they train a little bit less because they're, they're getting like, more. God, out of it. Oh, that fucking sucked. That um, was painful. So, like,
2: from your vantage point, like, I want to ask Caden the same question right sure. after. But like, what do you see going on now, and then what do you see on the forefront? That's, you know, you just mentioned science-based training is coming around. I think right. that's awesome.
3: So when we're looking at, let's, let's look at those top performers, right? The John Hacks, the Jamal Browners, even uh, Dan Griggs, to some extent. Mm-hmm. These guys are pulling eight 900 pounds on a yeah, weekly you, you basis. Forgot, you forgot
2: Dan Bell's name in there.
3: Dan Bell trains very infrequently, though, so, so he wouldn't fall into that category. So mm. when you're looking at what the evidence shows, well, if we want to develop a skill our training should be as specific to that skill as possible. Mm-hmm. So the more often we can lift heavy singles, the more likely we're going to be to progress our strength in heavy singles. But we also know that that's going to have the, the highest orthopedic tax, we'll call it. Sure. Right? So the dosage of that frequency needs to be appropriate for the lifter. And obviously the stronger absolutely that lifter is absolute meaning like the load on the bar, you're probably going to have to dial back that frequency. But what we're seeing with John and Jamal and and Dan is they're always lifting heavy.
2: See, I don't know yeah. how that's cuz like I think the biggest thing that's changing now from my point of view is like you would take a guy like Hafthor Bjornson or Dan Bell, Andre Milanichev or any of the other famous heavyweight lifters from the past 10-15 years which really like pushed the sport ahead. Lily Bridges, for example. like mm-hmm. the. I think the biggest differentiating factor that I could see prima facie is that those numbers in terms of absolute strength were not achievable for guys under 300 pounds until the last five years. You did not see a 600-pound bench press under 300 pounds probably until the last couple of years because who are we talking about? Kirill Sarachev, Julius yep. Maddox, mm-hmm. The list goes on. Massive human beings. Huge. I mean, if you've ever met Julius Maddox in person or Kirill Sarge, I've never felt so small next to a person except for maybe Thor.
0: Right. This is anecdotal, but I think that when I look at those guys who have that high frequency of lifting, Mm -hmm. you don't, like very heavy, like you said, John uh, Hack, Jamal Browner, Dan Griggs, you don't see a lot of guys who are grinding out those lifts. No, nope. it's like no. It, it, the, the guys who can train that high frequency to me seem like the guys who either lift it at something that looks like an RPE seven, or they don't make the lift. Whereas you see the guys uh, who, when they do train high frequency, are getting injured more frequently. Granted, the example I'm going to use, he's he's older now, but somebody like a Dan Green, who trains heavy often but also experiences a lot of injuries that's somebody who's grinding through
2: reps not lifting it at a rate that looks like what those guys are doing how is it possible for these For I'm, I just think of it as the next generation of the sport of powerlifting like I mean John Hack I mean 600 900 like that to me yeah, is
3: 869 get out of here
2: just did he squat 800
3: I think he went 804 6 in sleeves yeah, and I mean, one ninety eight.
2: Yeah, like I know how heavy. Well, he he did just under
0: six. Is. He did six in training. Uh, in the competition, he did like what was it, you think that's possible. Almost. I so. mean,
2: how do you think that they're able to sustain that type of strength? And like, I mean, even look, throw Yuri Belkin's name into the hat. It's
3: chronic exposure over time. Right? So they've just spent the longest period of time training in a specific fashion. Even those guys that you mentioned, those super heavies, their frequency is much lower, but their specificity is still very high. Eric, I, I Eric, used to train like
2: the L- heavier guys. Lily right?
3: bridge, Dan, Dan mm-hmm. bell. Yeah. Um, who was the other person that you mentioned? Milanochev. Malani- Malani- so these are guys yeah. that exclusively squat bench and deadlift year round with heavy loads. Right. So the research is very clear that the more time you can spend training heavy singles, the better you will get at doing heavy singles. The further Mm -hmm. you get away from those heavy singles, the further you get away from that specific adaptation. So it comes down to a question of dosage. And that question of dosage is going to be determined by recovery capacity. Recovery capacity is going to be dictated by training age, athlete size, Um, recoverability in terms of lifestyle choices, PED deployment, all of these things are going to impact recoverability. So if you're training in a sustainable fashion in terms of your recoverability and you're able to dose those heavy singles at an appropriate frequency that you can still recover, you're going to progress. John has been steadily increasing his His total over the last, let's say, five years consistently. That's true. There's never been just like a huge... Right. Training at a very high frequency with his loading. And he's remained injury free.
2: I think that somebody is going to take him away and study him for scientific purposes. (laughs) If we're ever going to create like a Captain America...
0: The craziest it's, it's thing to me about well, he, he, that's literally his like, I know,
2: his thing. But right? he's got the secret it, in there my, somewhere.
3: The craziest thing to me about John is he's like anthropometrically, like the way he's built, he's got long arms, so he shouldn't be a good bench presser. Mm. He's got long long femurs, so he shouldn't be a good squatter, and he's not necessarily built well to deadlift per se. Yeah, but he continues to excel. And you know what's even also interesting is that. He doesn't
0: use any of the advantages that a lot of powerlifters that excel in any one lift do, right? Like, for example, he doesn't pull sumo. He doesn't bench with a big arch. He squats high bar. It's like he's trying yeah. to put himself at yeah. all of these disadvantages. He's powerlifting he's power <laughs> he on hard mode. He, he's he's <laughs> as
2: strong as he is in spite of the way he lifts, yeah. which is like, I always tell people, I'm like, why am I going to powerlift? Like, you got guys look like at, John Hack out there. It's, look it's at Kev.
3: Kevin Oak. Yeah. Squats oh, yeah. high bar, Dunks him. Dunksum. Him. Right? So yeah. you're powerlifting on hard mode. And you're like <laughs> <laughs> yeah. He took and, the cheat codes off. No, he took the cheat codes <laughs> off. And then, you know, I returned to the fact that like if we're approaching training in an intelligent manner and listen and tracking our data, paying attention to how well we progress doing the interventions that we're implementing, well now we can start to develop this we'll call it a system for us to move forward. And that system will be iterative based on the feedback that we're getting on an ongoing basis. The longer you're able to do that, the more intuitive your training can be, the better decisions you can make in the moment. And now you're really setting the stage to like, you're cooking with dynamite at that point in terms of
2: progressions. I think that you, You just hinted at. To me, this is the the number one thing. And as as a not coach myself, just as somebody who's been like a lifelong gym rat, Mm -hmm. never been injured before, and like gotten to where you really never had an injury. Never
3: knock on every piece of wood in this fucking room.
2: I'm not lifting heavy anymore. What's going to happen? That's true. You're an Adonis. I think the point is that the people that are successful long-term are the ones who don't quit and consistently hit the, you know, if it's the gym, that's great. If it's powerlifting, that's great. If you're a bodybuilder, that's great. You know, whatever the thing is, the longer you apply yourself without interruption to a specific task, that is your chance of being, because I,
0: for anything in life,
2: anything that's a great
3: great segue for sure
2: right because like i i'm people who don't know on the podcast i own several real estate businesses and my day-to-day job is real estate brokerage and several other related companies that operate in that space and the only reason i'm still here to this day is because you know we just go into work and every day try and incrementally make progress and like sure i don't have a portfolio of 100 properties but like i've made very meaningful progress over the course of my career and like same with the gym i think that the gym is just a great segue like you said and an analogy for your professional life because you know what for most people the gym is a hobby there's we are in this room so fortunate that we got to turn it into something more than that and even for me it was something more to that because it Mm -hmm. led to so many opportunities in my life Training for me has always been a metaphor for life.
3: Like mm-hmm. even take
2: the squat, for example.
3: Like it's always been my favorite lift, right? Like I was, when I squatted 800 at 220, it was the sixth best all-time lift in that category, in that weight class. And it was always the metaphor of this thing is trying to crush me, but I'm going to stand up. I'm going to overcome this.
2: Ah, oh, See, I I went with a totally crude direction on that, but we'll talk about it later. <laughs> <laughs>
3: the, uh um, <laughs> And so in life, you transfer that over, you're not going to back down from challenges, Mm -hmm. The same things that allow you to be successful in training, that consistency. Those are the same things that have allowed me to be successful in coaching and business. Mm -hmm. I have a list of non-negotiable business tasks that need to be done every week. They get done every week and our business continues to grow. As the business needs change, those non-negotiable tasks change and they change based on the data collection and what that data tells me that I need. So over time, I consistently do the things I need to do to move my business forward. I do the same thing with regards to my nutrition. I get my 10,000 steps a day. I eat whole foods. I eat my fruits and vegetables. I prioritize protein. I get seven to nine hours of sleep most of the time when I don't have a three o'clock wake up for a flight. Um,
2: (laughs) You flew, you woke up at three o'clock to come here? Yeah, to avoid Pearson Airport. You know that they that's have flights at now. all times of the day, <laughs>
3: right? Yeah, but I wanted to be here with you guys today. Um, but that that's beside the point. Like there are that attention to detail and that consistency over time, mm-hmm. applied broadly in your life, is what will allow you to move forward. The biggest mistake that I see, and let's let's move over to the professional side of things of coaching. Coaches trying to do too much or always doing more to the point where the things they want to do more of are unsustainable. Think about how many coaches have started YouTube channels and just let them fall off. Oh yeah. I've never started a YouTube channel because it's not something I feel I can devote the time to on a weekly basis. Uh, How many coaches have started posting more frequently on Instagram and then fallen off? Yep. Right. How many coaches have taken on, way more clients than they can handle to the point where their service declines, they can't keep clients anymore and their businesses fail. Mm-hmm. So it's not about how much more you can do, it's about doing the right things really well, consistently over time. And at the right times. And yeah, at the right times definitely does help. Mm-hmm. But how are you gonna know what the right times are? You just try. You do, and and to your point, it's <clears throat> I've seen people even
0: who have worked for us who, have uh, sort of a zoomed out version or view of what the business is you know and they see all the things that we do now right they weren't here since the inception of the business right but then when they leave they think i need to have training nutrition a podcast a youtube channel a gym a this a that and they bite off a lot and what a lot of people fail to realize is that we started with one thing yep and we made sure we we're very good at that one thing and then we started another thing and then when we were good at that, we started another thing. And it wasn't just all at once jumping into all this stuff that we didn't know about. You know, We took the time to learn those things and sort of
3: build along the way. That's exactly how I got into my mentorship business. Right, mm-hmm. I, I was coaching nutrition and training. I ended up seeing a lot of coaches coming to me for those services because they wanted to learn how I did it hmm, maybe there's a, pr- a market for a product like that. So I started to offer it at a very low rate. Refined my process, got good at it. Now I offer it as a full spectrum service. Once that gets better, in September I'm launching a group mentorship. So a similar product, different market, different application. Let's see how this goes. Maybe that branches off into a new revenue stream. So I love that Let's, let's do this really, really well. Then once we can do this really well, let's try something else. It, it's an experiment. Like We were talking about social media earlier. Yeah. I treat social media like an experiment. I want to see what topics people really resonate with. And then I'm going to talk more about those topics. But I didn't start posting more frequently on social media until I was in a place where I had the systems to make it sustainable. I post three or four times a day every day. It doesn't take anything away from my business, doesn't take anything away from my time because I've systematically integrated it into my non-negotiable business tasks per week. And the payoff has been fantastic because it's consistent and it's gonna continue to be consistent. So what's next from there? I don't know yet, but that doesn't mean that as soon as I did this one thing really well, I have to move to the next one right away. Right. Let's see what topics people want to learn about. Let's see what really resonates. And then maybe we tailor a service to that, refine that service. And then that becomes integrated into our business. It doesn't have to be all at once. And in Mm -hmm. fact, the people that try to do it all at once, the capital investment, the time investment, it's not going to be sustainable.
1: What's up, everyone? It's your favorite podcast producer, Nick Tricana, here to give you a word from our incredible sponsor over at Element. Because we love y'all so much over here at Hybrid Unlimited, we're going to hook you up with a free sample pack of Element just for you. Each sample pack includes eight grab-and-go packets in a variety of different flavors. All you have to do is go to drinkelement.com drink, slash hybrid. That's drinkelement.com slash hybrid. Well, and... Also, the more things you do, the
0: bigger the team you need, the more expertise outside of yourself you need, right? Like most of us, most of us are good at one thing. If right. we're very, very lucky, we're good at two things, <laughs> you know, uh, at, at a high level. And that's something that if you're you're starting your own business and you're like, I'm gonna do, start these 10 things, it's like, how do you think you're gonna do that, right? <laughs> it's <laughs> like, you're the the best, the smartest people in the world are not able to do 10 things extremely well. They're they're delegating the tasks that they're bad at. You know, they have a huge, they have teams around them. Smart Absolutely. people have big teams. So uh, to your point, I think that's,
3: it's right on.
2: Yeah, managing employees just becomes a, a job in and of itself. I mean, you know, Absolutely. I mean, you guys have plenty, so you can attest. How to many
3: that. employees do you have now? Uh,
0: now, I think we have probably around... 45. Wow. We had at our at our largest number of employees we had 60. Very close. Cool. Six, 61 I think was our largest. Um but we we found uh over the maturity of the business people at higher levels of performance that could do more things and sort of absorb some of those other mm-hmm. little roles. Um but yeah, now we're sitting around I think 40 45.
3: Right. And so there's, that's an area where I feel that my experiences in collegiate strength and conditioning has served me well because I've started building a team. So now I have two coaches who work under me and we now have two clinical partners that work with us as well. Uh, we have a chiropractor and a mental health professional. So for me, Ooh,
2: Really, I like that. I like that you have an integrated mental health professional on your, mm-hmm. that's such new announcement.
3: Like, we have an integrated mental health professional.
2: That's like, I'd swear, man, in life in general, People tell, and maybe I think now mental health is coming to the forefront a little Absolutely. bit more in all walks of life. But definitely, it is so easy to let yourself get to a point in life where you're not taking your mental health as seriously, or you're so stressed that um, you know you you don't have the bandwidth, or you feel like it's okay to express that. Men, especially women, I, I don't even, I don't know if if they feel the ability to, but uh, I guess for everybody across the board, men, Absolutely. women. I know it, it varies, men to women. It's definitely
0: more stigmatized
2: on the the male side. Yeah, I feel like women are allowed to more, but some see it as a weakness, whatever. But I, I mean, I'll be straight.
3: I've I've seen a mental health professional. It started at, on a on a weekly basis in March of 2020, and I still see her every month. It's, yeah. For me, it's like brushing my teeth. It's a check in to make sure that you know I'm on I'm on pace and aligned mentally, emotionally. And uh, behaviorally with the places I want to go and the things that I want to do. And my life has exponentially improved because of it. So having a mental health professional on our team was a no-brainer for me. Um, but returning to, like, managing, we'll call them employees, even though they're contractors in my, in my book, you know, I've had 50 interns. I can handle a group of people. And it's all about organizing. You had 50 interns? At Queens, I had 50 interns. Wow. Yeah, 50 wow. interns um, doing what they each had different responsibilities within the, the athletic department and I also taught them their strength and conditioning class oh, okay so I taught them a class once a week and then they each had I think yeah. there's three per team on average I think football had five so they helped me coach
2: you guys have football up there
3: it's yeah, dude we
0: have the <laughs> CFL yeah, the CFL. That's where, never that's Ricky where people Williams who went to go play. That's where NFL players who get in legal trouble go play for a play. Yeah, that's where Ricky Williams went <laughs> to go play. That's where Ochocinco
3: went. Yeah. Did he? Yeah, he played for the Montreal Alouettes. <laughs> yeah, he did. did they make and the Winnipeg Blue Bomb. Didn't he do really well? <laughs> Didn't you like set some records? <laughs> no. Really? I don't, I don't believe so. No? Oh, okay. Never mind. <laughs> oh, that's relative. We're talking about the C F L here.
0: Well CFL is a totally different game. It's a it's a passing game, not a running it's game. It's three down football. Three downs.
3: Talking, what you our, our football is larger. Yeah, also, the, the field's also uh, 110 yards. So the the half half field is 55, and the end zones are 20 yards long.
2: Yeah. Why? Huh? Why reinvent? Why reinvent something?
0: Cause Canada. Yeah. Cause
2: <laughs> it, it sounds like almost like rugby. You said the passing game, like
0: very well, much. No, like it's more rugby's a passing game, but in close quarters. Oh, there's
3: also one uh, one extra person on the field. What do you mean? So oh, there's, a, there's an team. additional
2: player Yeah. Oh, per team.
3: Yeah,
0: it's a long game.
3: This is so
2: good. Because you only, have this three, is silly. Cause you
0: only have three downs, right? So you can't you it's you have one less down to try to run and make a small incremental difference in your position okay. on the field, so you have to toss the ball along. It
3: could potentially be fun. more exciting, but yeah. there's so many penalties.
2: Typical. Oh <laughs> <laughs> brutal. <laughs> Um, I don't even watch American football because I can't. You, uh, my attention is zero. So.
0: There is a ton of American players that play in the, oh, the CFL. Sure. Yeah. You know, to they the have point, a
2: shelf life here, but in Canada, it's like fair there's game been a forever.
3: lot of a lot of CFL players who've gone over to the NFL and had a lot of success. Mm-hmm. Okay, Warren, so, so Warren so Moon, ways. Doug Flutie, Doug Flutie, Doug Flutie played in the wow, CFL. Bill's he played for the legend. Toronto
2: Argonauts. Yeah. Oh shit. Argos. You guys have the Argonauts. Yeah. We do. It's probably. Uh, bottom tier Toronto sports team. Yeah.
0: Well, how would you rank the Toronto sports teams? Well, obviously the Leafs, Leafs Raptors, 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 Jays. Jays. Yeah. Then. The probably Bar- Toronto no. FC. Right. FC. That's fun. You've been to an FC game? I have not. They're great. They're really great. And I, I don't know if they still do it, but when they were trying to bring like the crowd in, they used to do tequila Tuesdays where they gave out free tequila to the entire
2: audience. Wow. I wonder how many fights happened, and if so they tracked the data on like, <laughs> violence on those days. Yeah,
0: if they don't do it anymore, then you know there was a lot.
2: <laughs> yeah. yeah, we're getting our own uh, football club here. Yeah, who just bought it? It was David Beckham. It's been him from the beginning. And is it Messi playing on the team? I don't know, but I know that they negotiated like a gangster deal out by the airport to build a massive stadium. Yeah. true those, Miami fashion.
0: Those are and it'll be you know how fun it will be here because of all the South American oh, influence? Oh, my influence. That's gonna be chaos in the stands. We
3: went to Panama earlier this year and I wanted to go see like a an actual like South American soccer game, but there were none on the week that we were gonna well, oh, you were,
2: so It's because you were in Central America. Yeah, I'm not a but
3: it's so big. I'm not a <laughs> geographer. Dude, i, that's I saw
0: Central the, America. It's not the same continent. I, I saw the Tottenham Spurs play in in England. Tottenham. The Tottenham Spurs. Tottenham. Yeah, that's I don't know. I don't know how to pronounce it correctly. Sorry, anyone who's sound English. Back on the
2: podcast, but you're gonna get so dude, much hate was, for that one.
0: It was <laughs> hectic. The, the The chant in the crowd. You'll like this one. That they were yelling the entire time was "Yid Army," because there's a lot of Jewish players on Tottenham. Yid army, yeah, they go Yid army, no and then it would just way. echo through the whole stadium. And it was, so and it was, a, were, it was like, a positive thing, it was not, it was not like a, the
2: most pro Jew crowd, yeah, there. yeah. This is great. And uh, go. oh, you're but, Jewish? I didn't know, yeah, yeah. I'm being facetious. <laughs> 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 we, you know, I think we talked about that, so maybe it was me and somebody else, but like I always get that they're like, oh, well, you don't look Jewish, and I'm like, yeah, I'm sorry, my horns are hiding underneath my <laughs> well, hair. Well,
0: you're you're giant, a redhead. And your last name is so Italian. I know, but people so, don't
2: realize that your faith and your or, or your country of familial sure. origin are two different.
0: Well, things. if they if they just listen to your your opinions, <laughs> after like ten minutes, you'd be like, "Oh, this is Larry David."
2: <laughs> <laughs> I was trying, you know, I was trying to become the Larry David of powerlifting. I just don't think anybody would have gotten it except for you. I got Maybe. it. Well, Com- in my books, you accomplished that for sure. <laughs> <laughs> or I I, I think. I think I am the world's strongest Jew. Wow. I don't know if there's might another be. Jewish man on earth that's stronger than me.
3: It's probably <laughs> an Olympic weightlifter who would probably try to fight you on that.
2: Who?
3: Oh. I'm sure there's an Israeli. Scott
2: Mendelson. He was a bench presser. He, he had a pretty good bench, but... That guy's so weird. Really? Well, yeah, how come? What I'm,
3: not, I'm not familiar.
2: Yeah, I don't know anything about him except...
3: So, I mean, so he was in a motorcycle accident and one of his legs is shorter than the other. That's why he doesn't do f- three lift? Like he hurt his back, and then he's got like the one he wears. He's a freak bench presser. He's a freak bench presser. He's got one shoe with a platform on it, kind of Uh, thing. Wow! Um, But now he's like a professional arm wrestler. What? Okay, yeah. And he—that's a weird sport. very weird. Didn't
2: Larry Wheels do that too? Yep. Yeah, I think he He trained trained with
3: Devin Larratt. Yeah, yeah. Famous Canadian Canadian. guy
2: who fought Thor. Right, the guy who fought Thor. He's from Ottawa. He used to train at our gym sometimes. Yeah, I was there. I was at that fight. I wasn't looking at In Dubai. Get, I know. Oh, okay. Did you watch that fight? After the fact. Yeah. Not pretty.
3: No. Definitely. Honestly,
0: Devin was... He's tough as nails. hes He was Canadian Special
3: Forces. Really? Yep. Oh, For like shit. a long time. He's uh, one of those dudes, like if you look at him...
2: You're just like okay, You're you've seen some shit. I feel like, and he's would, huge, huge. People don't realize how big of a man that is. People, people. would rag on Canadian special forces maybe here because they don't really understand. But I feel like Canadian special forces only get sent into like very, very like specific war zones with very specific missions. Like every very good at what they do.
3: Every dude I know who's JTF is legit.
2: Yeah, like the Canadian sniper from Montreal, right? There's, Nickname is Wally. He just like went oh, to, yeah, he yeah. went to Canada just now to go. Or sorry, went to Ukraine just now to serve, mm-hmm. and got. I think I think he came home early or something. So he was had, had to be done with it. But where where do we go? Why are we here? Why are we talking about this? <laughs> we no started <laughs> somewhere meaningful, and now we're talking we about the Argonauts.
0: Um, how do we get on football?
2: Oh, uh, he was talking about his interns. Okay, his yes, yes. His yes, army of interns. Yes, So we were
3: managing a team. Managing
2: yep. a team of employees and now interns. But I, I feel like your your background has led you to some pretty meaningful conclusions in the professional space now yeah. and your ability to help people is very special. You know, whenever I talk to you, it's very, you know, you, you've got a very good way of relating to people. You're very calm and focused. and Thank you. You're... Emotional intelligence is very high. So I think that that lends itself to being a good uh, coach in a lot of different aspects, understanding people's issues, relating to them. And I'm sure allowing people to feel okay with their problems is a huge part of why you are where you are and how other people can achieve the same.
3: You have to be able to to listen for the sake of understanding rather than listening for the sake of responding. Some people just want to be heard. They want to be understood so that they can feel as though their journey is meaningful to you, right? So when someone contracts you out to be their coach, they they exchange money for services. Let's think beyond the fact that you're issuing them a Google sheet Mm -hmm. or you're integrating them into an app. They're trusting you with their goals, their goals that are incredibly meaningful to them. And they're saying, I need you to help me do this that's a huge responsibility and it really irks me when I don't see that level of respect towards that from Mm -hmm. coaches in the industry. And I was talking to Jeff earlier today about, you know, and Simon, because we are all trying to be the best for our clients. So in providing a high level of service, I can't see you as my competition or you as my competition. We're all colleagues. Right? Because if you provide a high level of service, and you give someone a positive experience of the fitness industry, they're going to bring more people into the industry. Mm-hmm. So we're all going to grow. There's more people to serve. The industry grows. When we see the, the number of coaches with nefarious intent, and they see those dollar signs, I'm talking about like short term financial gain versus a sustainable business. They're not necessarily growing the industry. If anything, they're taking away from it. I'm, I don't believe in cancel culture. I don't believe in speaking negatively about others. So the only thing that we can do as a collective of coaches who give a fuck is continue to provide the highest level of service and grow the industry so that eventually we can drown out those nefarious characters because they won't be able to sustain their businesses. Mm-hmm. They'll hear about, you know, so-and-so who actually listened and solved problems. You know, I see it all the time. Oh, red flags in coaching. This coach does this. That coach does that. It's like, okay, but what do you do? How do you solve problems? Mm -hmm. Are you helping your clients? Are you building your entire business off pointing out what other people do wrong? Or are you trying to showcase the things that you do well?
0: Yeah, I'm actually so glad that you said that because I've always thought that exact same way. And I think... Too many people are trying to fight fire with fire when it's very obviously the solution to me to fight fire with water, right? Like you, you, you approach it from a different perspective. You don't butt heads in an aggressive way against somebody who is combative in the industry, Mm -hmm. you know? And there are some people that, that do it tactfully, but I think for the most part, the people who are always on the offensive, who are, are making content that is centered around the downfalls or shortcomings of other coaches lack either the creativity or knowledge to put out uh, just positive information themselves. So they piggyback off of what is obvious to most professionals in the industry as bad information and they use that to create content. And you don't need to do that. Exactly Mm -hmm. like what you said, there's absolutely no reason why you know, and it sounds cheesy, but it, it's true. It's like instead of just trying to guard your little piece of the pie, you grow the whole pie and your piece grows. Absolutely. Right? And that's the way I, I've always conducted myself. And most of the people who I respect in the industry conduct
3: themselves that same way. Yeah. And, and I can't tell you the number of times where I've inherited a client from another coach and the, the person will be complaining about said coach. My response has always been and always will continue to be, hey, we're talking right now. I would love to know what you didn't like about your experience, but I can tell you right now, your experience with us is gonna be different. And if it's not, let's have a conversation about it. Let's make mm-hmm. sure that you're getting what you need from us, right? The, the idea that I'm trying to poach a client by speaking negatively about their coach, I don't need to. Mm-hmm. I have enough evidence of success on my own sure yeah and the solution to bad speech isn't canceling it's good speech
2: and yeah well more more conversation and I always find that people in, in the world of fitness and social media or in business in general that are like you know how many times have you seen a guy just like yelling at his camera and posting oh. that on social media and thinking that that's an acceptable way to convey some message, whether it's a message about your own business or about politics or about anything in between. Like, I just don't think that resonates with people. I don't think that, you know, and then you could talk about the news. Like why do you think people are so fed up with watching the news and the traditional sources of media? It's like it's just all this anger. it's like we get home from work or we get home from the gym and you know we're tired and you know, you, you everybody has a lot of their plates. Mm -hmm. You know, it's 2022, like, you know, there's a lot to do. There's a lot of things grabbing for our attention. The most valuable commodity we have at this point is our time and what we focus on, which is why social media is so addictive. I'm so glad you said that. Time-consuming. But, you know, the the reason I'm bringing this up is not just to bash these things. No, No, we're not. We're just pointing it out. It is, to me, it's an exhausting activity to participate in consuming something that is... By and large, and on its face, negative. Like mm. anybody, just, you know, just sitting, yelling at a camera. This is my opinion. It's like who's who really, is, who meaningfully is going to resonate with that? Now you might, you might get somebody's attention. You'll get a response for sure. Right, right. But just because you get a response, it's a very polarizing mean right. one. Exactly. Yeah. Like that doesn't mean that you're correct. You might have fifty thousand followers and a couple. Of them, let's say like twenty of them respond to you and repost it or whatever. But like that doesn't make what you're saying valid, and it doesn't make what you're doing right. I also
0: think that that is um, something that people fall into. Is that why though? Tw- well, because when somebody puts something out there that's inflammatory, and twenty people respond to them, that feels like a lot of people, but it's not, right? If sure. you have fifty thousand followers, for example, and twenty people reaching out to you going hell yeah you that's exactly how i feel there's forty nine thousand something other people who didn't do that you know and just because you know we put value on the interactions that we have we that's what consumes our time it takes time to respond to 20 people it might take you an hour so you think that 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 you you really drove that point home but in reality you're you're just Wasting an hour. <laughs> well, and resonating with, with a non-productive, angry, angry minority that's right. not really actually
3: helping you in any way. So the, the, and I mean, that you're not helping in any there's way. There's two points there. I get it all the time. Like, what do you think about this? I don't. Mm-hmm. What's your opinion on that? I don't have one. Because I'm so focused on trying to do well by the people I'm working with. Do I see these things? Absolutely. But I see them. I say, does this integrate with how I feel about something? Can I learn something from this? If not, I scroll past or I hit the unfollow button. Mm -hmm. Wonderful button. (laughs) Um, (laughs) And then then two, as a business owner, would you rather have 50,000 followers who don't give a fuck about spending money on your business? Or would you rather have 10 that are actively invested and aligned with you and want to spend money? Oh, I'd rather have a thousand that are actually involved and willing to spend. So this is where, again, returning to social media is an experiment for me. Over the last three months, my Instagram has gone from my wife, my dogs, and my own lifting to mm. an educational platform where I'm sharing information and trying to help people. I've added something like 1,100 followers in three months, just organically. I've also lost 400. Mm. So my, my page has grown by like six or 700 people, but I've lost people who aren't interested in spending money on my services, which is to, to your benefit from my benefit perspective. Absolutely. Because my platform is my business. I am my product. Mm -hmm. So in being my product, I need to be the product of my product. I need to showcase that I'm doing the things in my day to day that I'm expecting others to do as well. So when I work with a coach on helping them build their business, they need to see that I'm actively engaged in trying to build my own business. If I'm working with a client who wants to improve their body composition while remaining strong, well, I'm improving my body composition and I'm still pretty strong. If I'm working with a client who wants to build their power lifts, I've been ranked in the top 10 all time in two different weight classes multiple times. So it's like, I am the product of my product. How many coaches approach their social media with that same attention to detail, trying to showcase the awesome things that they're doing for themselves and their clients Mm -hmm. versus engaging in this negative rhetoric. Yeah. This is a bit of a tangent, but you did remind me about something
0: that we've talked about a few times on this podcast, Sure. which is how important do you think it is for a coach to have competed at a high level to be a good coach? Yeah,
2: we have. This is a good question.
3: Competed at a high level, I'm not sold it helps because it provides, go back to the question of the barometer. Mm -hmm. They know what's required to do that. In my opinion, as long as you're actively engaged in trying to be the best version of yourself and practicing the things that you're preaching, I think you're covering most of your bases.
0: Do you think the criteria changes when you're an introductory level coach versus a coach that's coaching someone at a high level who's trying to break records and do things of that nature?
3: Uh, I think there has to be some level of empathy. I, th- I think you have to understand the requirements and the commitment and, and the investment of time and resources into achieving something great, uh, whether or not you've actually achieved those for yourself, I would say that you're probably better off having achieved some sort of success.
2: I'm glad you said that because I was my my thought as soon as you mentioned this, and I probably brought this up before when we talked about it, it,'s like that to me is a very visceral activity, meaning. I'm not trusting somebody to tell me to squat four hundred kilos when they don't even know what four hundred pounds feels like. Oh God no right, so but that yeah. that's that's my point, right? Like it's a very, very select group of people that can coach the top two percent, three percent, five percent, whatever you want to call it.
3: Well, because the rules don't apply exactly. the rules
2: don't apply to the exceptions, yeah, which is why to me it's such a visceral activity, like you know, if you know what things feel like you can also help guide somebody on, on their journey because you're just dealing with uncharted waters for the most part. Now, there is a bit of science behind it. and, and Yeah, but
0: that. I think when, once you get over 700, 750 pounds in anything, you can basically burn the textbook. You know, at yeah, that point, yeah. it's like... I think so you're you're dealing with some you know look at what the vast majorities of studies are done on either un, untrained, untrained individuals beginners or they're done on self-selected intermediates or advanced lifters right, like, and none of that even a self-selected advanced lifter very rarely is going to be somebody who's squatting. Like Julius
2: Maddox isn't writing a textbook 800 pounds. on yeah. the way and having people N- nor does he studying. give
0: a shit to go and be a part of one of those
2: studies. Right. right. No, he's, no. He's, he's not going to be a part of it. So I, I think at some point you leave the maps behind. Like you're certainly dealing with another you have to be dealing with another group of people that also kind of lived in that uncharted territory because only they know how to navigate those waters.
3: I would agree. The how about this what about the person who brought the lifter from good to great what about them like start like that coach who started with a lifter who was good brought mm-hmm. them to that level of
2: greatness and then they switch or they need no it's tough because I think that what? you can
0: have two types of coaches right you can have the coach that gets lucky who grabs someone who's good on a trajectory that you're going is the already direction you're going the direction going I want it to there, go, right that. or you have the coach that takes a lifter who's good who without their intervention might not have might have missed a piece of the puzzle that allows them to get to that next level.
3: What about that lifter who is genuinely a freak of nature and then tries to coach
2: normal people? I think you give them mm. a bottle of WD40 and they're gonna end up coaching <laughs> 600 pounds. Like, I think that those guys, like, they're just so few and far. Like, you know. Well,
0: but he's, he's talking from the coaching perspective. I'm talking right? from the coaching so perspective. If, you are, if, you, if you're just a guy who It doesn't matter. You you could do burpees and jumping jacks and you're still going to bench 600 pounds. Well, I think you could... How do you you relate your experience to coaching somebody, right? Because there's a lot of people, right? I think that's something that's actually criticized a lot in our industry is people who are just genetically gifted, who reach a high level, don't have a lot of background or understanding in exercise science, but then start offering unrelatable training advice to well, low they, level leaders,
2: they need to know that, that's like me. Like, I know that's not my place, but what, 100%. What,
3: n- what percentage of people have the level of self awareness that you do and can look probably, past,
2: honestly, probably very few,
3: and look can look past the the short term dollar signs of I've got 100,000 followers, I'm going to offer this $30 training program,
2: yeah, and I'm going to make 30k well, because overnight. I take pride in that stuff, mm-hmm. like, you know, like I have. A, decent sized Instagram page. I haven't even logged into it in like 10 months. Like, and, and that's not related to this point, but I mean, I could very easily just go on there and start mm-hmm. hawking garbage. Like, mm-hmm. but that's, I take pride in myself as a professional and as an individual. And like, I want, I always want to know that what I'm doing professionally, individually, like people can trust me. Absolutely. They can rely on my opinions. Like it's know, called integrity. You mean integrity?
0: <laughs> um, so I have a question, a follow-up <sighs> question for you. For sure. So what about the person who has 100,000 followers, is a genetic freak, has worked very hard, and is just sharing their experience transparently? This is what I did, right? Because I can think of one off the top of my head, possibly the greatest of all time. If you've ever seen Ed Cohn talk, yep. Right? Not an exercise Mm -hmm. science guy, right? More of a tiger, actually.
2: But loves tigers. loves tigers, yeah. (laughs) I had one. (laughs) I don't know. If you ever, (laughs) all right, anybody listening to the podcast and Ed, if you ever get to hang out with Ed, just ask him his tiger story. First time I ever hung out with Ed, he tried to choke me out. Okay, well, he's he an amazing individual. He's one of my favorite people. You know, actually, the first time
0: I met Ed Cohn, I was in Chicago and I just googled powerlifting gyms. I found a gym called Lance's Gym. I tried to I got to the building where apparently this gym was supposed to be in, okay? It's a giant building and there's a gym I walk into it. It's a different gym. It's like this CrossFit gym or whatever. I spent probably half an hour trying to find the gym. I had to go underground in the back entrance that wasn't open to the public, someone was just walking out of it. So then I got to like scoot in, walk through this long weaving hallway that had wood shops and unmarked businesses. Fantastic. I get to the end, I look into this place. It's a very like janky, old, rusty looking facility. There's a giant Python in a tank there. What? Yep, giant Python. And Ed Cohn's just sitting on a bench. And I was there with Steffi and we I look in and then we I step back and I go, pretty sure that's Ed Cohn. Like and we were pretty new to powerlifting, you know? So we knew of Ed Cohn, but we're like, you know, we never had any interaction. It was just like this is the goat of powerlifting. Yeah. Like, is that is that really him? And we walk in and Ed spent like hours with us, just Giving us tips, hanging out, being awesome. Yep. And uh, we had actually taken the train to get there from the suburbs, and he offered to give us a ride home. He was what like, "What does like Python the best... have
2: to do with this? You can't gloss over that."
0: Uh, <laughs> did Britney Spears the, train there? The the, the owner Lance, <laughs> the owner Lance, a giant, will get that. a giant man named Lance who owns the gym, hence Lance's gym. I guess likes pythons and had a just a giant python that lives there.
2: Seems legit. I'm not sure why. You know, what? last <laughs> time I was with Ed, this was last year, having dinner with him. I asked him. I was like, "Hey, like I heard the story about the tiger." Like oh, yeah. uh, he told me tiger that. Tiger. I
0: met again in Australia, and he told me the tiger story.
2: He was like, "Tiger," <laughs> and like he, he he was like, "Yeah, I had, I had a tiger. I had a, a a per I had a permit for it, so it was legal." I was like, "You tell me, they just." You tell me you had a card that said it was legal for you to walk around with this tiger and he was like yeah he's the real tiger king and it was like he showed me i think he showed me a picture of him <laughs> and kirk kowarski in a car he had a convertible it was a convertible with a yeah. little tiger in it. and i might be butchering a little bit of this story but the gist was like he, he was probably a, just a big house cat no. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. No, no, no. Well, it was a tiger. And he's like, like, this like, isn't a joking matter.
0: <laughs> hear, hearing <laughs> Ed amazing. talk about it is hilarious because. He's just
2: so like nonchalant. It's yeah. He's, well, his. Tiger, like, tiger I think. Perfect. I
0: believe, don't quote me on this, it was a family member, but I believe it was uh, his cousin, his cousin or uncle or something, was the mayor of Chicago at the time. When he was living in Chicago, with the tiger, so I think he pulled some favors to get him this (laughs) magical, special tiger permit. But he said he used to, he used to like he was pushing the limits with it. Like he'd walk the tiger down the street on a leash, and the and the police would be like, "Ed, come on, I don't (laughs) know the law about this, but you can't can't be walking your tiger down the street." And he'd be like, "Okay, (laughs) just take it back home." Oh my gosh. But the reason why we got on this to bring it back home, right, uh, was Ed is is somebody who speaks largely from experience, right? Um, but he has the evidence, right? So, but he does. But how do you know that works? Maybe he's one of those genetic freaks that you're talking about, right? Like he maybe he's the old school version of maybe the genetic freak who who shares his experience, but does that work for all levels of individuals?
2: Well.
3: So we could look at it a few different ways. Number one, like if you look at the application of the science within his training programs, his training went from general to specific. Mm-hmm. He spent time building muscle and then making that muscle stronger. He spent time training multiple movement patterns and progressing them over time. Like it makes sense on paper. Mm-hmm. Then you look at the number of athletes that he has helped achieve high levels of success. That's a good point using his well. methodology. So he's got the evidence that's part of the piece, right? So you have education, you have evidence, you have experience, and application, and then you have the application. Yeah,
2: I think at his level, though, he's probably dealing with such an interesting group of people, and like they're probably navigating uncharted waters to some degree. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Navigating somebody through uncharted waters at like an un you know just like an extra extra human level of strength, I guess you could say, is is an art. And it might be an art more than it is a science, because like you said, I mean, you're throwing out the textbooks at some point.
3: So that's actually one one line that I use all the time is that coaching is as much an art as it is a science, because we have this science that is based on a very in like you can't generalize from a population of beginners and intermediates to a level of advanced lifters. You can't. But what we can do is we can look at the principles espoused by that information and then having a broad toolbox from which to mold that application towards the situation in which you're working with. So if I have a very nuanced understanding of the scientific literature, then I have a robust ability to communicate with people and form relationships now i can have a nuanced application of that information to those specific people in different ways and as long as i'm tracking progress and gathering data i know the directions in which i have to iterate on that plan because i return back to the fact that i have this conceptual knowledge to begin with so if you're missing something along the way your application is going to be lacking And if you're not tracking over time, you're not going to have the information required to make proper decisions. So that art of application, that's the art of coaching to me, right? So having that experimental and experiential knowledge to approach a situation and say, I could use a hammer. I could use a jigsaw. I could use a screwdriver. What's the right tool here, right? Oh, I didn't get the outcome that I wanted or I did, but it could be better. Okay, I'm going to use a wrench with my screwdriver and I'm going to so that's how like that the analogy builds upon itself.
0: Yeah, I like that. It's certainly not a detriment to understand the the Absolutely. the textbook
2: version of of strength and conditioning. Yeah, that's why a guy like Ed Cohn, like I remember there was plenty of times like is he the first like big meat at least in my eyes that I ever did was uh, record breakers record, Reebok record breakers of like 2018 and Ed Cohn was my center judge at that oh, meet it was the first time I ever met him and I remember he told me uh, the last squad I did he's like honestly that was the only one that should have counted <laughs> like, I got greens on the other ones but the point was like I developed a relationship over time I would ask him about send him a video on Instagram and like to Ed's credit this is one of the most incredible things ever I could just send him a video and like you know he didn't know who the hell I was at that point except for seeing me at one meet. Be like, hey, what do you think about the deadlift? Like, I feel a little bit unsure about it, and he would say like, try doing this. And I think the wisdom behind something as simple as saying try doing Absolutely. this, it's like it's so hard to convey with science and and, and really because I mean some of my friends are some of the smartest people in this industry and like. Mm-hmm. I'll always tell him like, dude, you got to dumb it down for me. And I'm not saying that because I'm stupid. I'm saying it because Jordan, like, Doctor Shallow, fearlessly. <laughs> <the same. laughs> like, I love Jordan. He, but, but he's too smart. He's too smart for his own good. And I, I always have to tell him like, because I'm not as smart as him when it comes to what he's right an expert at. I always tell him, and and this is why I related to Ed's advice so much. It's like, just tell me very succinctly and like whatever i and i some of my training sessions with jordan are the best ever because like i'll just be like why'd you why'd you do it that way and he'll just be like well explain it in 30 words but i'll look at him while he's doing it and understand kind of like the principle behind it and i'm like oh oh that's profound and like at one time i was asking ed i was like how should i fix my deadlift and he's just like you know try engaging your there's something to try engaging your quads, And He gave me like a little cue. Like kind of like move your legs around at the bottom of your deadlift setup a little bit once you get tight. And it was like, whoa, it was a profound piece of advice because it was so simple.
3: Well, the value of the information that you're able to provide is only as high as the ability of the person to integrate it. So when you look at a guy like Jordan, Jordan's message aligns with his mission his mission is to raise the quality of information that coaches have at their disposal. Yeah, he right? wants he's, to create better he coaches. He wants to create better coaches and I think it's fucking awesome.
2: Yeah, because he's the smartest guy out there. People should be listening to him because he's so knowledgeable. And that's about his, what he has.
3: that's his argument against why he doesn't dumb it down. Right. But when you're dealing with people, your ability to communicate very complex nuanced information in a succinct and digestible manner is what's going to allow that person to integrate it into their process and benefit from it. So you have to be able to play both sides of the fence.
2: Right. The most math sure. I want to do with Dr. Shallow is the number of desserts we're ordering. So if you're listening, he'll be <laughs> well, here in Miami very soon. Burns desserts. Burns. Yep. <sighs> have you ever been? Yep. He's
0: moving in across the street from me. I'm mid-1025. I,
2: I know. I know. Have you Have you been to Burns? Yep. A couple times. I used to live in Tampa. How's your health uh, afterward? Very poor. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's the only way to do that's it. The only, I've never. So here, here's a funny story. I've been there several, several times over the years. But like but one of the dozens. <clears throat> easy. All right. I'm right here. I can hear you. <laughs> one of the funniest times I ever went was for, I think it was like a birthday of mine. And we went up and my mother-in-law lives up there. So my wife's mom is up there, and we we Catherine and I went out to dinner. We went and had the whole steak part, and then she joined us for dessert. And when she sat down, John Jordan, if you're listening, you'll you'll understand. She sat down, and I was like, I I knew what I was gonna do, just to freak her out a little bit. One of everything. I just I just <laughs> I didn't even let the waiter give us the menu. I just said, we just want one of everything. And, uh, and my mother-in-law was just like, Oh my goodness. Are you serious? There's only three of us. And I was just like, well, yeah, well, well, what would you have ordered? Listen, if you, eat, <laughs> if you eat at Burns and you
3: can't hear your blood pressure in your ears when you're done, you, didn't you did it us. right. <laughs> well, it's probably because you didn't visit the dessert room. <laughs> yeah, that's true. There's it's true. A, I'm always
0: completely stuffed by the time I finish the, in the main dining area. And then they're like, would you like to go to the dessert room? And I'm like, like,
2: obviously. Yeah. Yeah, I want to hate myself. I'm going to take too. one for the
3: team on this one. <laughs> yeah. No, it's not taking one for the team. You're going to roll me out I don't here. know about you, though. Like, I have a dessert stomach. Oh, it's different. Yeah. Like, and, and you have to be strategic here, right? Because you want to choose desserts, some that have some substance to them, and then mm-hmm. some that will melt and, like, fit around. Mm-hmm. So you got to fill the gaps.
0: All right. Well, you I- know, you can, you can, like, biohack your body. Have you ever seen the, like, man versus food? There's one episode where this guy he's eating I'm so invested in this by the way. Yeah. So he's he's eating an enormous and this is an expert in his field. He's eating it's he's eating an enormous amount of ice cream and it's like if you can finish this fish tank or whatever the hell it is of ice cream, you know, you get up your name up on the wall and this is what he's there to do, right? And you can see that partway through his trying to ingest this disgustingly inhuman amount of ice cream he's he's getting ill like he's getting physically unwell and so what he does is he orders like a a huge amount of french fries and he starts eating the french fries and the salty contrast to the sweet dessert that he's having allows him finish, like, he immediately starts looking better as he's eating the French fries, and he gets, like, this second wind, and he powers through Get the out. entire thing of the ice All cream. All right, so wait,
2: what's the what's the takeaway from that, that if you're eating... Well, it, he was talking
0: about his dessert stomach, and no, what I'm No, no, but, like, is, what do
2: the French fries have to do with his ability to continue? Is it just the sodium? I think it's it? a palatability thing, right? Yeah, like just the salty uh, and sweet, and
3: they... Compl- like, you know... The, f- if- the first time I was ever introduced to that was, you ever hear that story <laughs> that... Um, um, J.M. Blakely tells about his bulking diet where you, no. you go to McDonald's for breakfast and you order one of every breakfast sandwich. You put a hash brown and mayonnaise on each one. And then for, for lunch, you go to an all you can eat buffet and eat till you, pu- is eat guy, till you is can't eat anymore. this still alive? Yep, he is. <laughs> and then, and then for dinner, you order an extra large pizza and douse it in olive oil. But the caveat to all of this is that every hour on the hour, you have to eat an arrow bar. A what? An arrow bar. Is that it, Canadian? Maybe. Uh, maybe it's like. Can you a, feel it, the
0: bubbles melt? Have you ever seen that commercial?
3: It's it's basically oh, a it milk. It's a milk chocolate bar that has like it has like bubbles in it. So How's this? Like You're telling me he's eating a chocolate just bar wait, every hour? Just wait. He eats. It's to keep your insulin levels high, because you want insulin for the storage hormone, right? <laughs> so, but what? the he, reason they choose is Aero bars ways to do that. is because you don't have to chew them; they, just, they just melt. melt. So even if you're really full, you can still ingest it because it just melts. You just stick it in there yeah. and it
0: just slowly falls down. Yep. You're, you're telling me that this
2: man's secret in between the all-you-can-eat <laughs> buffet, the McDonald's breakfast sandwiches with hash browns and mayo, and the extra large pizza with olive oil was pelicaning chocolate. Yep. <laughs> There's more efficient ways to get some insulin. Without question. Like taking insulin. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for reading my mind. Yeah. That does not seem efficient, and it also seems like very very unhealthy. unhealthy. Well, but it's technically natty. Right?
3: Like, you're not taking a thing, you're just eating a. Is this guy a (laughs) bodybuilder? No, he's a powerlifter, or was a powerlifter. Was he natural? I think that goes without question. He was not. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, so maybe then he should have done something. Why
0: would he do this?
2: I'm no doctor. <laughs>
0: Listen, I'm just the messenger
2: I'm just curious it's like the only person I've ever heard of doing something similar was Eddie Hall's diet trying to become world, and obviously he became world's strongest man But it looked you know he ate different.
0: an entire cheesecake as his pre-workout for every deadlift session he told us that oh
3: shit really Yep. that sounds like a recipe for a real bad time yeah
0: I feel like I would puke well I don't know if he puked or not but he did definitely
2: lift the most ever at one point Yeah, that's. I I don't know if you could directly attribute that to the cheesecake, although. I mean, I've heard
3: some people do
2: link correlation and causation. (laughs) You're telling me I could pull 500 kilos if I pre-workout Pelican the cheesecake. That's literally all. I think the only. (laughs) I think the only way to prove it is to do it.
0: All right, boys. I'm on retirement. Hey, we we know a good cheesecake place. Fireman Derrick's.
3: (sighs) Oh my god! I had that after Showdown. It's it's so good
0: that it's me, just like if you if you're hearing this and you come to Miami, just don't even go, because it's so good. You're just you want,
2: well, all right. Can I, all right, let me ask you guys something. I'm gonna go around the table. I'm gonna finish last because I'm gonna be embarrassed by my answer. But I want to <laughs> what a gentleman! Everyone, <laughs> what time do you eat Fireman Derrick's? Let's say you order it. We know what the witching hour is. Earliest. It's, a, it's about nine p.m. when you're first ready to eat it. Sure. Oh, I, I eat it at four p.m. Okay, you're a sick freak, but let's, <laughs> let's move on then.
0: That's certainly... 4
2: p.m.? Yeah, we
3: finished at the hybrid meet. <laughs> oh, but
0: that was once. I don't live it's here. And he's on vacation.
3: It's, yeah, that's a whole yeah. different... We, is, it's like, it's we literally the airport. Ate, we ate key lime pie every
2: single day we were here. For, As you should. That's a good 10 move. days.
3: That's a good move. And there was one day where we ate dessert five times.
0: You know,
2: if, it, <laughs> you, know, if you eat enough key lime pie while you're here, like, they'll just send you a green card.
0: Yeah, you're a resident.
2: Call my wife's law firm. resident. Leonie Law, PA. (laughs) I did. She helped me out big time. You got scotch. (laughs) You know what? I told Hayden that Wayne Gretzky scotch, I was drinking it. was good? Ever. I started every day. This was probably not healthy. He owns a winery too, right? Yes. I came home and I would make like a crushed ice drink every night for a little while i don't know why but i just i liked this drink it's making whiskey slushies yeah it was really good whiskey actually nice i was very proud but i wish i right. could
3: have enjoyed the whiskey with you guys but you know i'm a
2: body builder now okay well all right you also eat fireman derrick's at four. what time yeah, did you true. eat fireman derrick's last
0: that's a late evening early morning kind of meal for me okay you're <laughs> being really nice about this but like
2: you know what time you ate it that's You know what time you ate. That's a, just, just be honest with everyone. 10 p.m. earliest. You just said late evening, early morning. Yeah, that's morning. late. That's, you, early morning. You, you included early morning. As well, if you yeah. know, what time did you eat it?
0: The latest? Yeah. Ever? Yeah. Well, I, I, I think some days I just didn't stop. <laughs> <laughs> I think some days I started. Did you Uber
3: Eats it or did you go?
0: I always Uber Eats it.
3: Yeah, I yeah always you Uber eats would. It. You have to. Uh, you have to. Well, yeah, drive,
0: drive. I mean, past a certain point, you can't deal with the shame.
3: <laughs> that's
0: the difference between you and I. I have none. You just walk in.
2: You walk in at like 11.30 p.m. There's nobody sober walking into Fireman Derrick at 11.30 p.m. <laughs> I would. Okay. Well, you'd be the only person there that's sober at 11.30 p.m. I'm like, hi, can I have an entire carrot cake?
0: Yeah. That's, that's what he does. Oh, character, well, character. hey, well, I only do the entire thing for myself once a year. That's on my birthday. Okay. Well, all right. Now
2: I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to out myself
0: here. Okay. Did you do deadlift after? <laughs> no. Absolutely not. <laughs> well, sometimes. I, sometimes. Because I, I eat it over the course of a week. Um, I don't let anyone have any of it. Inadvertently,
2: it's pre-workout at some point. Yeah.
0: It's every meal, actually. Breakfast, lunch, dinner for like a week. <laughs> it's my least healthy time of the year every With year. With insulin. Huh? No, that's just spiking and crashing all on its own. <laughs> he does it in spite of himself. So all right, so I'm gonna
2: I got I'm gonna make an admission to the world. Every time we have fireman derricks in my house, like I might have it for dessert, but nine times out of ten, it sits in my kitchen until three in the morning and I wake up to go pee and then I end up like, I'll, there's so many days I'll wake up, like, in the morning, I'll go back well, to if my bathroom. If you have to like past it. And I'll, well. like, I'll go in to pee, but somehow I bring pie in there with me. And, like, <laughs> I'll be eating pie in the bathroom, just standing up in there. The reason why Marcus <laughs> is prescribed Lisinopril. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not proud of it, but I'm a man that likes to be transparent. At least you're
3: honest. You know, you're sharing your process. <laughs> you know, you're, you're endearing yourself to the I, audience. I
2: went this morning, I had, like... Two of the little plastic pie containers in my little tiny. Oh, this is.
0: You're absolving your sins of
3: recent. Recent. My
0: <laughs> sister
2: came over this week and she ordered seven different pies. Oh, wow. Slices of pies. They stayed in okay, my house. we nose. can't
3: continue this conversation. <laughs> There's I've had two. 1,600 calories today. Okay. Yeah, you're well, killing had, this he's guy. He's in prep. I had
2: like one piece. So it's only the crack pie I like. But like, <laughs> I'll go in. I went into my bathroom this morning and like over the course of the past week. <laughs> you ate cheesecake in the bathroom? <laughs> no, it was crack pie in the bathroom because you can hold it.
3: Um,
2: I, I went in there and like is. in the middle of the night, like, uh, you know, I just I, I <laughs> did you guys, Did it.
3: you guys ever do that diet, um, carb backloading
2: by no. John Kiefer? I've never no, done that in my life. I'm
0: aware of it, but I never did it anyway, personally. it was like
3: a combination of intermittent fasting with like post-workout. What's binging, the, what's the uh, you eat it at night? You eat, you eat. A very large bolus of carbohydrates and calories post-workout after fasting most of the day. You also, in conjunction with some caffeine intake and other... why would
2: you do that?
3: There's a bunch of very shitty science associated with the diet. Anyway, I remember eating Ben and Jerry's in the shower. That was probably the worst. Wow. (laughs) Wow, really? Oh, yeah. That's
2: impressive. Yeah. Normally, I brush my teeth in the shower. Really? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I do that too. I
3: don't have a mirror in the shower. You oh, need a dude. mirror? I, I like looking in the mirror, making sure I get all the crevices. No, man. If you get a
2: mirror in the shower, you can shave in there, too. Yeah. I have one, if you, if you get a I have one in my there, Toronto
0: place. I don't have one here, though. You get a telephone. You a
2: telephone. You can conduct your whole business. You put you get a, a garbage disposal a in. Garbage
0: disposal? You never have to leave. It's so like it's Kramer. Just home.
2: <laughs> no? no? No. Maybe this is American. All thing.
0: right. We've gone off the rails here. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I'm <for> uh, <laughs> Yeah. Yeah so to close out because i think we've covered a lot of good topics we were serious we talked about biz we talked about yeah for a while fitness we talked about uh insulin and <laughs> both to, natural and unnatural yeah, <laughs> ways of to, to bring it all back home uh you know as someone who's been in the industry for a very long time and you've been in many different uh parts of the industry mm-hmm. i think what most people desire nowadays is to end up in a position where you are now running your own business, being your own boss, an entrepreneur, uh, you know, with multiple revenue streams and uh, you came from a very traditional background in the space. What's some piece of advice? What is the number one piece of advice that you would give somebody who's trying to make that
3: transition? To invest in yourself and your continuing education. And that doesn't mean acquiring more certifications. Go and learn from someone who's been there before part of the reason why I started mentoring coaches is because I wish I had a mentor when I came up. Right. You talk about, we talk about ROI all the time, so mm-hmm. return on investment. So when I'm posting on social media, you know, Marcus doesn't use his social media anymore because he wasn't making any money off of it. His mm-hmm. business doesn't matter on social media. I, ser- I tend to make money off the leads that I generate through social media. So I have an ROI there. The ROI on your continuing education is absolutely there when it comes to mentorship. So investing in mentorship, investing in hiring someone to teach you how they do the things that they do so that you can integrate that into your own practice. Because if you invest the money there, it comes back to you from your business. If I go get a certification, I'm not going to make money off the fact that I have a certification per se, Mm -hmm. until I I take... um, you ever heard of f- FST, fascial stretch therapy? Oh, yep. Yeah, FST7, yeah. F- no, no, no that, 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 that's, that's Haney well, Rombaud's. Yeah, well, cer- they,
2: didn't they apply that like, the thought process toward that training program at some point? Or Maybe. Or was it just named similar? I think
3: it was just named similar. But, okay. So FST is a certification that you, know, you mm-hmm. can stretch people. Yeah. The certification costs upwards of $3,000. So if you're going to invest $3,000 and then charge $90 an hour to f- stretch people... How long is it going to take you to break even wow. on that certification? Well, if you spend 1500 bucks a month on a mentor to speak with you every week and game plan, and you go out and get 15 new clients that first two three months, you've already paid for that mentorship and then some because you're going to keep those clients long-term. So investing in continuing education where there's a direct ROI is my number one piece of advice.
2: What about daily like practical habits? Because I know all of us as business owners, we've developed we developed our own system of running the business and I know it's industry specific, but if you were to tell people two to three things, uh, practical bits of advice for their day to day, or maybe more of like a mindset type of uh, bit of advice, like in terms of longevity and how to succeed in whatever their field of business is, what would you tell people?
3: Um, I'm very routine oriented. So I would say develop a routine that you can replicate day to day. So wake up at the same time, Do the same things every morning. Um, Number one, having a routine. Number two, investing some time each day into yourself, whether that's your own training, whether that's some sort of personal development or a combination of the two, having time during the day where you're focused on yourself, because if you're always giving to others, you need to be able to fill your cup. And then number three is sharing the information that you have. So investing time into developing some sort of means to communicate to people the things that you're doing, the things that you're offering because a lot of the time we spend so much time working in the business and providing the service that we forget to work on the business and actually tell people what we're doing. So as long as you're doing those three things every day, you're going to be improving upon yourself. You're going to be practicing what you preach and you're going to be telling people about all the great things that you're doing.
2: That's amazing. Very practical too yeah. I find that practicality is the easiest way to relate to people in terms 100%. of progressing yourself day to day uh, being tangential and esoteric is it's it's great and it's fine for academic discussions and highbrow podcasts but I don't find that that's the easiest way to help people achieve some modicum of success Absolutely. It, I think the incremental steps day to day the Hey, why don't you just take this afternoon off and go on a walk with your, your wife or your dogs? Or, mm-hmm. you know, hey, you don't feel good? Well, you don't have to go to the gym today. Yep. Because your life is not depending upon it. And I think finding ways to relate to people in that sense, and just, I love talking to people about that stuff because, like, mm-hmm. you know, they look at somebody who's as strong as any of us in this room. They want to know, you know, what are some of the things you did? And it's like, it's not like we're superhumans. It's like, yep. There's a combination of, of smart training and genetics, which is a, a big thing, and also a lot of time involved. and during that time, you gather knowledge. And whether you have a mentor that you pay for, you just go to people for advice, yeah. find that grains of practicality, little bits of, of easy to digest and use information that people can put into action, or it's not some big thing. It's like I always find that, for me. I'll, I have a, a matrix of a to-do list mm-hmm. which is planning and scheduling and processing and uh, you know like I didn't come up with that thing my business partner did you know because he's nuts and I love him for it but like I apply that thing and it's very very effective for my day to day now I could say like let's just do those three things today when it comes to reaching out to new clients yep. or call three people and be thankful today yep. and I could check those things off and it's It's as simple as it gets, but like for you guys on Instagram, right? Like if you have Mm -hmm. three people that uh, are DMing you, it's like, well, pitch them on your services. You literally have nothing to lose. Absolutely. And anybody who's getting into the game, so to speak, of entrepreneurship or business building or, or coaching, like it is as simple as asking. Like, you know how many clients we have in our business that are just from just, cold emails because you're just like you know what I mean? i'm going to enroll that person in an email sequence in our crm like you know how much money we make off those people every month like it just by taking a little leap of faith And it's that little practical bit of mm-hmm. of common sense advice to people like put three things in your calendar today yep just like without fear or with fear it's fine to be afraid of doing it you might get rejected honestly you probably will get rejected yep but what it could turn into if they don't say no is huge. Also, like what's the? Why is no so bad? Mm-hmm. Fear is a very powerful motivator. Yeah. So is not having any money. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. There we go. That's the truth. Yeah. I mean, that's. I don't know about you guys, but that's how I started my business. I was like, okay, either mm-hmm. this is going to succeed, or I'm not going to have money in two months. Mm-hmm. You know, that was, I. I that's simple. I went a different direction because I did
3: have a full-time job, but I had over $100,000 of student loans that I wanted to get rid of. I was like, I need to get rid of this as fast as I can. That's why I started coaching on the side. And then mm-hmm. I was like, well, I still really love this and I need to get back to it. And then as soon as I was done my student loans, all right, I'm betting on myself. Let's go.
2: Well, I think that's an amazing message and a great place to stop. So. Sure. Uh, where can people find you and uh, get in touch with you if they For want sure. to utilize your services? So you can find me on Instagram at Paul O'Neid,
3: P-A-U-L-O-N-E-I-D. Uh My business is Master Athletic Performance, uh, www.masterathletic.com or at Athletic on Instagram. Uh, Coaches Corner U, where I uh, do continuing education with Tony Montgomery. Um, so www.coachescorneru.com. We're launching our third cohort of our certification course September 12th. And we also have a monthly webinar series that we do. Uh, You can pay for the webinar or you can become a member of the site and have access to hundreds of hours of continuing education courses uh, that we've put out over the last two years. Awesome. Well, bro, thanks for your time, Paul. My pleasure. Thanks for having me.